Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. I'm glad to be with all of you today. And we're gonna cover a whole chapter in Zechariah today, Hearts Like Flint. And you know, this chapter, we're, we're moving beyond God's visions to Zechariah into some messages. Remember we covered the crowning of Jesus, the four horsemen, and then the crowning of Jesus last time. And now we're moving into something that might hit home for a lot of us, actually. Uh, God's going to hammer away at the traditions of man. And, you know, when you think about our culture today, we are riddled with traditions. And the risk that we all run is that those traditions can get in the way of the word of God. And so let's, let's pray, let's go to the Lord and we'll dive in here. Lord, we thank you again for this time together. God, I thank you so much for your word and that it is a light to our lives and a lamp to our feet to show us how to walk. God, I thank you that you've preserved it for thousands of years for us, that it can be our shield and our sword from Ephesians 6. And God, we do pray that you would engrave the word on the tablets of our hearts as you declared in Proverbs. And Lord, as we study your word and open this up, I pray that you would speak to each one of us in a very special way. Let your word go to the end of the earth and back. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. Well, we're gonna, I'm gonna go through some of these intro slides pretty quick, but you know, as a reminder, remember, we've always got to lean on the Holy Spirit to teach us everything from 1 John 2, 27 and 28. And because opening up the Bible, the best way to put it, it's not a logical exercise, it's a spiritual one. And the understanding of man and the knowledge of man is futile. The understanding and the knowledge of God is infinite. And so you've got to lean on him and trust in him to teach you everything in the most important book that you could ever pick up in your life because it's not just a book. It is Jesus. It is Jesus on every page. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. So remember, Zechariah is at the, the very end of the Old Testament timeline, so to speak. You've got They've been in exile in Babylon for 70 years. They've been released by Cyrus to come back to rebuild the temple. They're not getting very far. The Lord raises up Zechariah to encourage them to spiritual maturity, to press on. And from Zechariah, from about that time, there's about 400 years roughly to the Messiah, or 500 or so. And those silent years are actually covered in Daniel 11. Zechariah, he prophesies to the Jews about their Messiah more than almost any other Old Testament prophet. It's amazing. He's, he covers Jesus all the way from his first arrival to his return in power at the end of the seven-year tribulation, Revelation 19. He spreads over thousands of years with his prophecies. And he covers Jesus as the stone with seven eyes, which is a link to Revelation. He covers the throne of, of our Messiah, the throne of David, and Jesus being crowned. He covers Jesus, the Nazarene, which is a fulfillment of prophecy, 
not found anywhere else in the Bible, but here. The king riding on a donkey in Zechariah 9.9, when we get there, was the fulfillment of Daniel 9, the, 70, the first 69 weeks of Daniel's 70-week prophecy. It was fulfilled to the day in Zechariah 9.9. And the shepherd, he was the smitten shepherd, he covers his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver and actually what they did with the, with the money when they betrayed him, how they used it to buy a field. He covers Jesus being pierced or crucified. He also covers his return in power, like I mentioned in Revelation 19. So the outline of the book, we've gone through all 10 of those visions took place in one night. So in one night, God gives Zechariah those 10 visions all the way leading down to actually the crowning of Jesus is how it finishes chapter six, which was an Aaron, not a vision. That it was a physical acting out of something future. And Zechariah does that with those men from Babylon. Starting here in chapter seven, there's kind of an interlude regarding the feast days. And what God is going to hit here is that the Jews, now they're, they're clinging to their traditions. They're, they're clinging to something that was not ordained by God in the Torah. And as a result, they are making God's word of none effect, null and void, as the, as the Lord says. And if you think about the traditions of man, what will become very apparent for each one of us in our own lives is to look at, is there anything in our lives that we hold above God's word? No matter how well-intended it may be, is there anything in our lives, a tradition, a, a ritual, you know, if, not to use that word out of context, but something that you do that you cling to more fervently than, than wor the word of God? Because if there is, you've got to get rid of it and get back to what God ordained. And that's kind of the message here. So the first six chapters, as I mentioned, of Zechariah, they all occurred in one night. And those visions, if you remember, they covered the almost the entire history of Israel. They covered the subjugation of Israel's enemies after their imprisonment, the regathering of Israel in the land, which we have seen as of May 14th of 1948, Israel's cleansing and restoration, and then the tribulation preparing for the establishment of the millennium. Now, if you paid attention to the prophecy update video before we started here, things over in Israel are boiling and they're getting hotter. And when this war started to break out a few weeks ago, you know, you look at it and you think, well, maybe it'll die off after seven days or something and they'll kind of put Hamas in their place and Hezbollah will back off and we'll just get back to things as usual. And it doesn't seem to be happening. And as this continues and you hear people like Erdogan in Turkey saying, Israel, we're, we will declare war on you if you do this anymore. And the people of Iran, the leadership in Iran saying, we will wipe Israel off the map if they lay one siege against Lebanon and Hezbollah. So you, remember, Hamas is in the Gaza Strip along the coast. They and Hezbollah in the north and Lebanon are all backed by Syria and Iran, money. And the leadership funds these terrorist groups to act out on their behalf against Israel without it being a nation state, so to speak. And so you have to, you have to watch it very closely because Netanyahu and Israel, they're not idiots and they know who's behind all of this. And the US government, we now have 
our military has, I think, somewhere around 12 warships between the Mediterranean and the Persian Gulf now, aircraft carriers sitting. Uh, we're intercepting drones. Some missiles have been fired at us. Yemen has declared war on Israel. This has all been within like the last seven days. And so you have to really pay attention that things could spiral and speed up very quickly. And so what you're seeing in Zechariah, Zechariah has foretold all of this. Actually, the whole Bible has, but Zechariah's been hitting it that Israel's enemies would be put down and they won't last for very long. There's gonna be a season of which the Antichrist rules obviously for seven years, but even that's only seven years. And then Jesus comes back to take, put him in his place. Okay, so after these visions are over, chapter seven takes place approximately two years later. So there's a, sometimes in your Bible when you're reading, pay attention to when God dates things because he's trying to tell you something. Uh, it's easy to, when you go through chapter six and you chart, start chapter seven, just think, oh, this was like the next morning or something. No, there's a two-year span here that God is working with his people. And a lot of people date chapter seven to around December 7th of 518 BC. Okay, and the, so remember when we started the book in chapter one, verse one, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, remember Darius is the king of Persia who took over for Cyrus. Well, chapter seven, verse one opens up and it came to pass in the fourth year of King Darius. So you see there's a two year span here between what we've been studying and now where we are. The date of chapter seven would also be approximately halfway through the time of rebuilding the temple. So they started to rebuild the temple. They're about halfway through it and then got, and they're stalling out, they're staggering because they're not pressing on to spiritual maturity. They're not clinging to God's word. They're clinging to traditions of man and what the Jews really think, not what God's telling them. And again, in our own lives, you and I can run that risk. We've got to cling to what God is saying. Cyrus decreed for the temple to be rebuilt and it's been halted. So they're about two years into, about halfway through it, okay, through this timeline. Cyrus ruled from 559 to 530 BC. So his son then picks up, Cyrus gets killed in battle. His son takes over at 529 BC and rules for about seven years, eight, seven to eight years, 522 BC. He then is killed and Darius rises to power and rules from 522 to 486 BC. Okay, that's the timing that we're in here. Darius then reaffirms what Cyrus decreed all along and it's chronicled in Ezra chapter six. So in Ezra 6, Darius the king made a decree and search was made in the house of the rolls where the treasures were laid up in Babylon. Now, keep in mind, what, what, these, what the Jews did, they would have God's word and they would bury it in storehouses or in the temple somewhere and they wouldn't, they wouldn't take it out that often. So they had some Pharisees and scribes and people that would read it a lot. The, the normal everyday people could have read it much more than they did, but they really didn't. They kind of looked for the Pharisees to tell them what it said. And so Darius is, he, God moves in his life in a mighty way, and he wants to go get the scrolls, the word of God, that were laid up in the house in Babylon and read them for himself, because he hears about what Cyrus did. And there was found in that palace that is in the province of the Medes, a roll, and therein was a record thus written. In the first year of Cyrus the king, the same Cyrus the king made a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. 
Let the house be built or builded, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundation thereof be strongly laid, the height thereof, three score cubits, okay, that's about 60, and the breadth thereof, three score cubits, so like 60 by 60. And that's, uh, if you think of a cubit, about 18 inches, roughly, okay, that's about 90 feet, 90 feet by 90 feet. So pretty big, pretty big spot. With three rows of great stones and a row of new timber, and let the expenses be given out of the king's house. Now, this is fascinating because what, what Cyrus did is he gave them out of the Persian treasury the finances to go rebuild the temple. So everything the Jews needed was provided for them. And despite that, only 50,000 of them took him up on his offer. 50,000 out of millions of people. You know, and it's, it's a staggering thought to think today in our Christian lives, if you will answer the call of God, everything in your life will be provided for you by God. And how many Christians actually step out and take that step of faith and they worry about provision when Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. You know, today has enough cares of its own. Okay, and let, also let the golden and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took forth out of the temple, which is at Jerusalem and brought unto Babylon, be restored and brought again unto the temple which is at Jerusalem, everyone to his place and the place them and place them in the house of God. Okay, so Cyrus made the decree, Darius reads it, and he follows through in that decree through the rest of Ezra 6. And those are in your notes if you wanna read it. What I wanted to point out though is just in verse 11 what he says in Ezra 6. Also I've made a decree that whosoever shall alter this word let timber be pulled down from his house and being set up, let him be hanged thereon. It kind of reminds you of, remember Mordecai and, and Esther and the, um, the whole event uh, with Haman. Remember Haman made a gallow that he wanted to hang Mordecai and all the Jews on. And what it ended up being was he got hung on his own gallow. It's kind of that same concept where, hey, if you're going to alter the word of God, the very house that you thought was yours and that you built, you'll be hung upon. Let him be hanged thereon and let his house be made a dunghill for this. So th see, they took it very serious. The Persians almost took God's word more serious than the Jews did at times. And the Lord was pleading with the people to rebuild the temple early in the reign of Darius. And Haggai 1, starting in verse one, in the second year of Darius the king in the sixth month, in the first day of the month came the word of the Lord by Haggai, the prophet, unto Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. Remember, he was the governor at the time. And to Joshua, different Joshua, this was Joshua the high priest that we crowned last time, saying, thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, this people say the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai, the prophet, saying, is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, in other words, your beautiful places, and this house lie waste. So you see what God is saying. He's saying, the people are ignoring my call for them to rebuild the temple. I'm calling for them to do it, and they're sitting there going, ah, it's not the time yet. It's not time for that to be rebuilt yet. It kind of reminds me of the Christians who in the end times will say, no, it's not quite time for the rapture yet. You know, we've got, we're, remember the, the people in Second Peter, since the fathers have fell asleep, all things have remained the same. Where is the promise of his coming? 
And God is saying, no, we're drawing closer, we're drawing closer, get ready, we're drawing closer, we're drawing closer. You need to be preparing, preparing your life and your walk with me for this. Okay, so to start in Zechariah 1 here, we read, we read verse 1 a little bit ago, but at the fourth year of the King Darius, that's when this comes. Okay, the fourth day of the ninth month. So God is, what you always need to notice is God is dating his word to a Gentile king, which means the times of the Gentiles are still in play here. And Luke 21 is the reference here for that. Luke 21, verse 24. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be fled away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down to the Gentiles until, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So the times of the Gentiles started with, with actually with Nimrod, but it goes all the way until the Antichrist is put down. That's the times of the Gentiles. Jerusalem is trodden down. Does Israel have Jerusalem totally under control right now? You know, there are terrorists everywhere, there are bombings, people, they can't even get on the Temple Mount to rebuild their temple despite them wanting to. It's very much trodden by the Gentiles still. But when Jesus returns and puts the Antichrist down, all of that ends. So in verse two, when they had sent unto the house of God, Sherezir and Regmelech, and their men to pray before the Lord. So Shrezir is, it's a Babylonian name, meaning protect the king. Remember when the Jews were taken to captivity, Daniel was renamed, Belteshazzar. And you kind of can confuse that with Nebuchadnezzar's grandson at times, Belshazzar, but it's a different guy. Belteshazzar was Daniel. Remember his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? Everyone always remembers them by their Babylonian pagan names. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because Nebuchadnezzar renamed all of those people. They, Babylon had a tradition of doing that. Regmelech, that name means the king's friend. So the king's friend and protect the king are coming to Jerusalem, okay, to give this message. They were sent unto the house of God. Now in Hebrew, it's actually, this is actually Bethel. Remember, Bethel means house of God. And it's really, this should be reckoned they had been sent from Bethel, not sent unto the house of God. So it's, it's a little confusing, but what God is saying is they were sent to Bethel. These men were sent to Bethel, meaning the house of God. So the Bethelites, Bethelites, that's a phrase, had returned with the remnant and they'd actually rebuilt the city of Bethel. You can find that in Ezra 2.28, Nehemiah 7.32, and Nehemiah 11.31, where God references the people of Bethel in their villages. That was all after the captivity. So the Bethelites had rebuilt that city. Now remember, Bethlehem means the, the house of bread. Bethel meaning house, El meaning God, Ham meaning bread. Bethlehem is the house of bread. That's where Jesus, obviously. Uh, Zechariah chapter seven, verse three here. And to speak unto the priests, which were in the house of the Lord of hosts, and to the prophets, saying, should I weep in the fifth month, separating myself as I have done these so many years. Okay, God, now this is where you've really got to dive in here. Okay, so stay with me. There's some good things here. Stay with me. Separate myself. So God's asking this sarcastic question. He's referencing a man-made day of mourning, the fifth month. What is he referencing there? What he's referencing is a festival or a day of mourning, a season of mourning that the Jews instituted called 
Tisha B'Av. And it's an annual time of mourning in Judaism, which remembered they, were, they remembered and recognized by instituting a fast. And it was held on the fifth to the 10th day of the fifth month. Okay, it's not a feast or holiday ordained by God in the Torah. It was a number of disasters in Jewish history occurred on this day. And so they instituted a man-made fast to remember and kind of commemorate this time. And the destruction of Jerusalem and Solomon's temple occurred during this time by the Babylonians. You can find that in 2 Kings 25, 8 through 10, and Jeremiah 52, 13. The temple that was standing when Jesus walked the earth was also destroyed during this time by the Roman Empire. You know, how, how convenient is that, that the Romans picked the same date? Tisha B'Av is also the day that the children of Israel who murmured against God in the wilderness... Remember, they took it upon themselves to spy out the land. God never told them to. That was their idea. And then he told Moses, fine, let them do it. But he didn't want them to. He wanted them just to press on and go into it. Take it. It's yours. Don't, don't try to go look ahead. That's when fear starts to set in. And in your call in your life, when God tells you to do something, I would encourage you not to, not to sit back and overthink it. You know, to overthink, well, let me go spy that out a little bit and just see what's ahead. Because the enemy will use that to get a foothold of fear in your life and you'll be paralyzed. And what God says to go do, he told them, go and take it. I will deliver them into your hands. Remember, Joshua and Caleb were the only ones that thought they could do it. But that's this date, Tisha B'Av. They, they spy out the land. They saw giants. They freaked out. They didn't believe God at his word. And so God said, okay, your entire generation, you're going to die in the wilderness. Your children will go inherit what I had for you. So your inheritance got passed on to someone else, a future generation. And there's a, there's a big lesson we could study for weeks about that lesson alone, about your inheritance. Okay, it's also the day that the Roman governor of Judea, he performed the foundation ceremony to try to rededicate Jerusalem. So this is after Jesus was crucified. Okay, you're getting around to 70 AD when, when Jerusalem's destroyed. What he did was he plowed over the designated location of the temple and it was seen as a religious offense. And so it turned the Jews against the Romans once again and led to the Bar Kokhba rebellion. If any of you have heard of the Bar Kokhba revolt or rebellion, that's why it happened on that same timeline. So all these bad things in the Jewish history happen in this Tisha B'Av kind of timeline. And him, the Roman governor doing that actually is a fulfillment of Micah 3.12, where God said, therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field and Jerusalem shall become heaps and the mountain of the house as the high places of palaces of the forest. And the Jews, they didn't like that. So they rebelled against the Romans. They obviously get killed and wiped out and they get scattered all over the world in the diaspora. Okay, but he's asking a, God's asking this sarcastic question now that you understand the background of his question. Okay, all, the t all these times in the past, God had to separate himself from his people because of their rebellion. So look what he says. Should I weep in the fifth month separating myself? So all these different times, they were rebelling against God and God cannot dwell and be in fellowship with people in rebellion. So he's, 
He's having to get further away. He's having to separate himself. Okay, you're, you're not drawing close to me. You're drawing further from me. And that's why James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The opposite is kind of true too. You, you can get a lot further away from God than you intend. They're in a position now though to enjoy great prosperity and be restored in the land and rebuild the temple. But they're not doing that. They're clinging to these mourning and these feasts instead of walking into what God called them to do. So the exile was over. So why should they be mourning and continue grieving? You know, it kind of reminds me of David whenever he, he committed adultery, then murdered the guy with Bathsheba, murdered her husband, put him at the front lines of the war, had him killed, and then remember God took the baby as a result. And when the baby was born, it was very sickly. David is fasting and praying for health and healing over that child. God takes the child home, and the next morning what happens? David washes himself, gets right with the Lord, and goes about his business. And remember, all the Jews come to him and say, hey, why aren't you grieving and mourning anymore? It's kind of that same attitude. And David says, well, what good will that do? I, I can't bring him back to me. When I die, I will go to him. See, David knew the principle of God of the age of accountability and that that child, that baby, would be in heaven waiting for him. But he knew the time of mourning was over. That's what God is saying to his people here. The time of mourning is over. Clean up, get yourself right with the Lord, and get about his business. So they, they instead, though, wanted to keep mourning and going through these, these long, sorrowful fasts and to kind of almost in a sense punish themselves, so to speak. Okay, verse four, then came the word of the Lord of the hosts unto me saying, speak unto all the people of the land and to the priests saying, when ye fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, okay, so they had another one. It wasn't just the fifth month. They did something in the seventh month. Even though 70 years, so all 70 years in Babylon, they continued this. Did ye at all fast unto me, even to me? So the Israelites continued fasting during this time of mourning, and not only during the fifth month, but the seventh, and you can find elsewhere in scripture also the 10th month, but these were ordained by man. And if the Israelites were really serving God in this fast and mourning, the question by God would have never been asked. God's asking, did you do it to me, even unto me? See, a man-made ceremony, a ritual, and legalistic tendencies led them to fasting and commemorating this memorial each year and doing it under their own demise instead of trying to serve God. And the question we all have to ask ourselves are, is, are we serving ourselves or the Lord? That's, the, that's really the crux of the question. Are we serving ourselves or God? The Jews were serving themselves in this regard. So speak unto all the people of the land and to the priests saying, when ye fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh month, even those 70 years, did you fast unto me? Remember the fifth month, Tisha B'Av. The seventh month, they instituted a fast for the fast of Gedalia, which is when it was the anniversary of the murder of the governor whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had appointed over the land after the captivity. The 10th month, you can find else in scripture, memorialized the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem. So these guys were putting in a fast for every bad thing that happened in their lives. It's like if you got into a fender bender, well, let's fast every time on November the 5th. We're going to do that for the rest of our lives, and we're just going to mourn about it forever. 
when instead the insurance gave you a new car and you're, you're moving on, on on your life. You know, you've got to let things go and move on. But to Beth was in 2 Kings 25.1 and Jeremiah 39.1. Now we'll see in Zechariah 8 verse 19 when we get there that another fast was added in the fourth month. See, that's the thing about the Israelites. They were so dogmatic about holding to traditions and fasts and trying to keep these rituals and things. They really were, but they never realized that if they would just abide in God's word and under the shadow of the Almighty, they would be set free from all of that, that they could walk in liberty and freedom, and that it's the whole book of Hebrews is about that. Okay, in verse five, um, oh, does that happen there twice? Sorry. Okay, let's move forward here. For all this fasting and mourning, the real issue, according to God, was the heart and motive behind it. Okay, the, there's a much deeper problem here of attitude. So they just were doing it to do it. And they felt like these legalistic things would make them righteous before God. They were not observed for God's glory. They were purely for self and had become a legalistic ritual, not giving any glory to God. And they were doing it to further punish themselves, to keep mourning over and over. So remember what the Lord's saying. He's emphasizing his place of where a fast should be directed, which is to him, even to him. Now, fasting is, um, is ordained in the New Testament also for us. We'll look at that in a second. But God's calling out the complete self-centeredness of their fasting and mourning. And what you and I have to realize is that only God knows the heart of man. Only God does. So from Psalms 44, verse 21, shall not God search this out? For he knoweth the secrets of the heart. In Hebrews 4, 12, for the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. That's why modern day psychology is, is always doomed. They don't use the word of God to separate soul and spirit. They use emotions and feelings and things like that. Uh, your past history. If you want to be set free from trauma, you use the word of God. That's the only thing that can divide the soul and the spirit. And when you divide that by the word of God, you put the spirit that you're regenerated and born again of over the soul, the mind, will, and emotions, and the direct link to God drives everything in your life, not the reverse. So your emotions no longer are leading your spirit. It's the way God intended all along. But you can only do that by the, the word of God. It's the only thing that divides asunder the soul and spirit unto the joints and marrow. And look at in Hebrews 4.12, the last part, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know how often you see people do really great things in their lives. I think about the secular business world all the time. Well, I wanna donate all this money, but I want a wing of the college named after me as a result. And, and they're trying to show people, look how charitable I am. You know, look how great and giving I am. And you see these people try to memorialize their legacy by putting their names on things because as you get through life, I'm telling you, I've seen it for so many decades now in the business world, there are a lot of very successful people out there that realize at the end of their life, they climb the wrong ladder because they get to the end of it and they look around and they realize, wait, there's nothing on the other side of this wall. I'm, I'm looking at the grave in the next 10 to 20 years and I have nothing in my life that is eternal. 
And so they start, what do they do? They start trying to leave a legacy. They start putting all their focus on a legacy. How, how much money can I give? What foundation can I set up? What building can I have named after me? Whatever it is. And they realize, because even if you're not saved, the Lord eter- wrote eternity on their heart from Romans. They know they are eternal and they're getting ready to go into eternity. And it's a warning for all of us that you've got to be careful of what you put your hand to. Is it wood, hay, stubble, or is it gold, silver, precious stones? Look at 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said unto Samuel, look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature because I have refused him. Remember, he's talking about David. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for the man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. So only God, see, nobody thought David would be king, but God had appointed him as king and God knew his heart. Who stepped forward when Goliath was in the valley blaspheming God? The giants in the land ridiculing God, blaspheming the Lord, criticizing the people, and who comes forward? The littlest, scrawniest guy of the whole bunch that wasn't even in the military. He was a shepherd. And he's like, hey, Who's allowing this giant to adjourn the living God? And he goes down there and he takes a a stone, just one pebble, and he knocks out the giant. It's amazing. He actually picks up five stones because Goliath had four brothers. And so he was ready for all five of them. He wasn't just looking for Goliath. He knew there'd be someone behind him. And then he obviously later on in his life takes out Goliath's brothers Okay, we should do all things to the glory of God in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. So anything you do in your life should be to the glory of almighty God, anything. And what does James say? Count it all joy. So whatever circumstance you're in, count it joy and do it to the glory of God. You have a very short window to deliver a testimony to the world and then you're gonna go home. And everything you did in the spirit will ripple for all eternity. Now, fasting is biblical. They, they probably should have been fasting for some times, but the motive was in the wrong place. Now, look at Matthew 9, 14. Then came to him that the disciples of John saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast oft, but the disciples fast not? So he's saying, he's, you know, they're coming to Jesus and saying, or the disciples of John saying, why are all of us who are religious and high mighty doing these things and fasting, but the people, the disciples are not? Why are they not doing that? Okay, Matthew nine fifteen, the next verse. And Jesus said unto them, can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? He's given them a prophetic, he, this is prophetic. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them and then shall they fast. So he's saying, Jesus was prophesying that when he ascends after the resurrection, the disciples would fast, and indeed they did. Okay, look at Acts 13, verses two and three. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. See, they were being commissioned by the Lord at that point for ministry. Acts 14, verse 23, and when they ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commanded them to the Lord on whom they believed. 
2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 5, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings. If you take that list, these are intense things. They were being beaten, they were in distress, they were laboring, they were imprisoned, and in all of that, they fasted. So these probably were not trivial fasts. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Now, when you undertake fasting, be sure to put the emphasis where it belongs, which is on the Lord. Okay, fasting uh, before big turning points in your spiritual walk can be a big key. There's a lot, there's a lot in the spiritual side of things that get unlocked during a fast, but you've gotta be doing it to the Lord, and oftentimes you should be doing it in private. Uh, some of the strongest, most spiritually in tune people I know that I've ever met fast often and they do it without telling anyone because you don't want the motive to be wrong. You're not doing it where, hey, look at me. I, I, I just can't, guys. I'm on like a 40-day fast without sugar, you know, or whatever. I'm in ketosis. I can't, I can't eat that. So, there, so you have to make sure your motive's in the right spot, okay? And you can fast in many different ways, water only, specific foods, activities. You can do all kinds of things, but just make sure you're doing it unto the Lord, that's, you've got to make sure, and you want to do it in secret. It kind of reminds me of Mark 12, 38 through 40, and he said unto them in his doctrine, beware the scribes which love to go in long clothing and long salut love salutations in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and the uppermost rooms at feasts which devour widows' houses and for repentance make long prayers. These shall receive the greater damnation. Okay, what he's saying is all these Pharisees and these scribes and these people, they love to go about showing you how religious they are. So they would do things and the motive would be wrong. It would be, let me, let me see how many words I can put into a prayer to, to show you how religious I am, that kind, of, that kind of feeling. Okay, should you not hear the words of the Lord which the Lord hath cried by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity and the cities thereof round about her when men inhabited the south and the plain. Okay, this current contingent in Israel, they're restored but struggling and poor. Israel in the past was very prosperous. They were one of the wealthiest nations in the world. They arrived to this current struggle due to their blatant disobedience. And God's now going to finish this chapter by asking a different question. So, are we listening to ourselves or are we listening to our creator? Okay, so this chapter ends here. Now God shifts gears and the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah saying, thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, execute true judgment and show mercy and compassion every man to his brother. So God's calling us to execute true judgment, to have righteous scales, okay? And to stop cheating people. Show mercy, show compassion to one another, this is especially vital for how Christians treat one another. We should be treating one another with a higher standard than anyone else in the world because we follow Jesus. And how often you see some of those vicious, dogmatic fights are between brothers and Christians. 
because of something so silly and they just, you cling to things that you shouldn't cling to and you, and you get dogmatic about it and you let your words run rampant and you use your tongue and try to tear someone down. But look what Jesus says three times in the book of John, a new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another. Why is that a new commandment that Jesus gave? You know, think about that. He says, this is a new commandment. This is something new, not in the Old Testament. I'm giving you a new commandment. Well, part of it is because you and I from 1 John, God is love and you have God now dwelling in you permanently. So you're able to, to do this. You are able to love one another this way as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. And by doing that, what's the result? All men know that you are my disciples if ye have love one to another. John 15, 12, this is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. John 15, 17, these things I command you, that ye love one another. Now remember, love is an action. It's not an emotion. Love is an action. It's a verb. Okay, for God so loved the world that he gave. It was a verb. He gave his only begotten son. Our relationship with one another will reflect your relationship with God himself. In James 2, 14 through 26, you can read all of those, but just look at the middle part in 15 and 16. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, depart in peace, hey, I'll pray for you. Be ye warned, warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? In other words, if you see someone in need and you're not trying to meet that need, what good is it? What good is it? You know, yes, praying for people, no doubt, you've got to do that. But if you are in a position where you can help meet a need and someone comes to you with a need, God says, go and help them. Go do that. Help their need. In Micah 6, verse 8, he hath showed me, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. God has and always will expect us to care for the widows and orphans. Look at verse 10 here in Zechariah 7. Oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor, and let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. So he's always, he's calling out the widow and fatherless in Zechariah 7. He's always had that in mind. Remember in James 1.27, I'm skipping down to the bottom here, but pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the, from the world. We're gonna talk about this in a minute, but unspotted from the world, God has a standard of righteousness and holiness for our lives, and you need to be unspotted from the world. You can also find that in Malachi 3, 5, and, it will come, and I will come near to you to judgment, and I'll be swift witnesses against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against fake or false swears and against those that oppress the hireling and his wages, the widow and the fatherless. If you, are, if you oppress the widow and fatherless, then you are on the wrong side of God. Okay, and there are a lot of people out there that oppress the widows and the fatherless. A lot of people out there, um, a lot of people out there do that globally. But they refused to hearken and pulled away the shoulder and stopped their ears that they should not hear. Now the stubbornness of the Israelites pulled away the shoulder. What that means it's, a, it's an agrarian term for an agricultural community. 
What it means is it relates to the difficulty in yoking an unruly ox. So think about if an ox didn't want to have a yoke on it to go plow a field, they would call that he pulled away the shoulder. And so that's what God's saying about the Israelites. They're refusing God. They're refusing to put the yoke, the proper yoke on and go serve the king. And they stop their ears in Hebrew. It's called, he's calling them dull and unresponsive. Now, seven times in the New Testament and seven times in Revelation, Jesus says, he that hath an ear, let him hear. You know, you've got an ear. All of us in here have an ear. So we need to hear what God is saying, not be dull and hard of hearing. In verse 12, yea, they made their hearts as an adamant stone. Okay, that's where God titled this message from. Lest they should hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts hath sent in his spirit by the former prophets, therefore came a great wrath from the Lord of hosts. So their hearts, what God is saying, their hearts are like an adamant stone that cannot be cut. It's like, think about the hardest stone we know is a diamond, right? Think about how hard it is to cut a diamond. Their hearts were made like flint. They could not be engraved upon. And when you study Proverbs 7, verses 1 through 3, look what God says about this. My son, keep my words and lay up my commandments with thee. Keep my commandments and live in my law as the apple of thine eye. Bind them upon thy finger Write them upon the tablet of thine heart. You know, God wants to engrave his word on the tablet of your heart. He's written in stone, actually three times in the Bible, God wrote in stone. Twice on the tablets, once when Jesus was confronting, remember everybody surrounds the, the adulterous woman and they want to stone her and Jesus walks in, it was actually in the court of the temple. You can find this in the gospels. It's in the court of the temple. And Jesus stoops down and it says he starts writing. He's actually writing in the stone floor of the temple. That's one of the things that got their attention. It wasn't that he was writing in sand, you know, just writing their names and sin. He had his finger and was writing in stone what they did and who they were. And can you imagine the Messiah in front of them, calling them out and writing with his finger in stone. It's remarkable. It's one of the coolest, one of my favorite scenes of Jesus in the the gospels because obviously then they all back away and Jesus stands up and looks at the lady and says, where are your accusers? See, because by his word and his law, writing in the tablets, the accuser has to flee the avenger, the accuser, the the enemy, the wicked ones have to flee. And God, when you study the word of God, I know I say this all the time and I don't think we'll ever fully realize the depth of it, but it is a spiritual exercise that you have no idea what happens in the real you, in the spirit side of you. That word gets engraved on the tablet of your heart and you, you will forever walk in fellowship with the Lord. And I just would encourage all of you to take that very serious. Therefore, it, it has come to pass in verse 13 here that as he cried and they would not hear, so they cried and I would not hear, saith the Lord of hosts. So because they would not hear the cry of those around them, God is refusing to hear their cry. And the principle there is you will always reap what you sow, always. But I scattered them, the last verse here, but I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations whom they knew not, 
Thus the land was desolate after them that no man passed through nor returned, for they laid the pleasant land desolate. So the disobedience of God's people caused their inheritance to be taken and to be laid desolate. Now, however, they were still God's people. I think when we finish Zechariah, I think I'm gonna spend probably, I don't know, three, maybe four weeks, but we're gonna do a whole deep dive study on inheritance and rewards versus salvation. Uh, because this principle goes unnoticed in large part in most of the world and in the body of Christ, and it's very important. Because no one can take your salvation, but as Jesus said in Revelation 3, hold that fast which thou hast that no man take thy crown. You have an inheritance laid up for you on the other side of this that is for all eternity, but it is dependent on what you do in this life. If you are faithful and you abide with the Lord and you walk with him, you shall rule and reign with him. There's a big difference between entering heaven and inheriting heaven, a big difference. And when you, can, when you can see this throughout the Bible, it will change the way that you, I think you look at your responsibility right now. Because these rewards in the Bible, you know, God lists five crowns. Each one of them is for something specific. And I'll just touch on the crown of righteousness real quick from 2 Timothy 4.8. It's linked to your excitement about the rapture. Those, all of those that are looking for his appearing have laid up for them a crown of righteousness. Now that crown is linked to that. The name of it is linked to what it should produce in your life. So if you're looking for the rapture of the church and for Jesus to come and take us home at any minute, it should produce righteousness in your life because you should want to live a righteous life, holy and acceptable to God, if you know that any minute God's going to find you doing something. And he's gonna, with a shout that's going to reverberate and wake the dead, he's gonna shake the entire universe and the enemy will tremble at that moment because they know their time is very short when Jesus calls us home in an instant and you and I are out of here in the rapture. And whether it happens in our lifetime or not, you should live a righteous life knowing that at any moment, God could call us home. You and I are in that season. We are in that window of time that God has ordained from the very beginning. There is more written about the time that we are walking into than any other time in the Bible. And we've got to take it serious. And it's time for God's church to lay aside the things of the world and to walk in the authority that the Messiah wants us to walk in. You know, when you take a bucket of, of water and you stick your fist down into it, the water disperses, right? But what happens when you move your hand out of that? It's not like there's a void sitting there where your fist was that waits a few seconds and then water starts to trickle in. It's instantaneous. As you yield ground and back out, that water instantly fills that void. And in the world right now that we're living in, you're watching as the church gets weaker and weaker and weaker, what happens? Every time the church takes a step back, darkness fills that void instantaneously. There's no shortage of the enemy wanting to take ground in the, in the world right now, in churches, in schools, in your family's lives, in your life individually, in your walk with the Lord. There is no shortage of ground that they will take. 
There doesn't come a time that the enemy is like, okay, l- listen, I've had enough. You can stop being weak now. <laughs> he, he will take as much as the church is willing to give. And we have a duty and a responsibility to be a light unto this world, to assault, to be salt in this world. And we've got to walk and abide in the word of God according to what he's laid out so that we can be faithful and finish strong. Paul was obsessed with running the race and finishing strong, lest I be a castaway. This is Paul. That's the Holy Spirit writing through Paul. And here's a guy that was one of the greatest Christians to walk the earth, that we know of at least. And he was, he was obsessed with not faltering and falling astray and getting back into sin. And you and I should live that same life with a fervent love and passion to be in God's word and to let him shake everything out of your life that can be shaken so that that which cannot be shaken from Hebrews 12 will stand. And you can walk and abide and walk into your calling and your inheritance. And when you stand before Jesus and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, come into the the inheritance I have prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God has a call on each one of us in this room and we have got to take it serious. And maybe it's not to to speak to thousands of people at a football stadium or something or be the next Billy Graham. It may be for you just to talk to someone in your life. It may may start there. It may be uh, pray with someone at Target or at the grocery store or wherever. It may be to take a position in the city council or to be on a school board or whatever it is. God wants you out there making a difference and it starts with just being obedient. And these five crowns, when you study them, each one is laid up for you and it's tied to something different. And what that crown is for will produce that in your life. Life, righteousness, glory, and imperishable faith, rejoicing. In the book of Revelation, there are nine rewards to the overcomer. When I read back through it last time, I used to only have eight on this slide, but there's actually nine. It's number five. I had missed number five, that God will give you the morning star. That's Jesus himself, the bright morning star. To eat of the tree of life in Revelation 2.7, not heard of the second death in Revelation 2.11. The hidden man of the white stone in a new name in verse 17. Power over the nations in verse 26. The morning star in verse 28. White raiment that you as the bride should be wearing right now. A pillar and a new name in the temple of our God for all eternity in verse 12 in chapter three. To sit with Christ on his throne. How cool is that? This should excite you more than anything else you've ever read. That God has something laid up for you that is so glorious, that is so powerful, that is so majestic. I mean, you cannot even imagine what these are like. And he gives it to us as a taste, just to know if you will live a holy and righteous life, I have this for you as a faithful servant and to inherit all things in the, in the second to last chapter of the whole Bible. You know, when you think about Esau, what was Esau's problem? He forsook his inheritance. He forsook what God had laid up for him. That wasn't just a a bowl of porridge. That's not the issue at hand. What he valued more was something in this life than what God had laid up for him. And he was willing to sell it. 
and he sold it. And then remember when he gets to the end with Isaac and Isaac says, I'm sorry, my son, there's no place of repentance found. That principle there is the carnal Christian who lives for the world. When you get past this life and with the Messiah at the Bema seat, when you're saved, but there's nothing left for you because you blew in your inheritance like the prodigal son, that's where that place of no repentance is. There's nothing the Lord can do for you at that point because your life is over, your work for him is finished, and you've got to run and finish strong. The prodigal son, he never lost his sonship, but he went off and blew his inheritance, didn't he? And when he came back, he was crowned and put, the cape was put on him and the ring and the shoes. He never lost the fact that he was a son of the king, but he had no more inheritance. And there's gonna come a time when you and I are gonna stand before Jesus and everything we did in our lives will be put to that test. So we've gotta be an overcomer. We've gotta remain loyal to God. We've gotta overcome trials and tribulations. We've gotta be spiritually zealous for the Lord, not man-made traditions. We cannot deny Jesus. We cannot defile our garments or be spotted in the world. And we've gotta keep his, the word of his patience. We have to run as a patient, a patient servant of the King because it's a long walk. You know, that's why in Isaiah he says, you shall run, you shall run and not grow weary. You shall walk and you shall not faint. The walking is the hard part. When you're, when you're on fire for the Lord and you're running with all this adrenaline, man, you feel like you could run forever. But as soon as that starts to die off and you have to walk with Jesus, the real challenge sets in. <laughs> But if you're here and you need to be born again, or if you're listening to this anywhere in the world, Jesus has something so great for you, so incredible that you can't even imagine it. And it's so simple. It's Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that he hath been raised from the dead, you shall be saved. You are born again and forever a child of the king. You are a son and God has an inheritance for you as a child. And because he became flesh and fully man, he's able to claim that inheritance and put us as co-heirs in that will and that, is, that estate. So do that. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. We do pray that God, if there is anyone out there that does not know you, that they would yield their lives to you, that they would get on their knees and confess with their mouth that Jesus, you are king. There's only one that could come and take our place and that could be a ransom for our sins and to cover us by the blood of God himself. And Jesus, we thank you for doing that. We thank you that your blood speaks a better testimony. And that by those words, you will tear down anything in our lives that need to be teared down. And Lord, we thank you so much for this time together and for Zechariah. God, we pray that you would speak to us this week. And Lord, we pray that you would absolutely open the doors from Revelation 3, that the door that you open, no man can shut. And the door you shut, no man can open. So open those doors for us to walk through and let us hear from you the call that you have on our lives. Lord, let us no longer be an, a bride that is ashamed. Let us be an unashamed bride 
walking in this world and serving you and abiding in you and carrying out the call that you have on our lives, Lord. Be with us as we leave this place and prepare us for the week ahead, God. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.